0: Hi, welcome to Help with Parkinson's podcast number 21. Our guest today is Dr. Supermanian, Movement Disorder Specialist at Hershey Medical Center, and I'm your host, Warren Budfinick. Dr. Sue, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks again, Warren, for um, having me on.
0: Good. So uh, our topic today is a pretty important one that a lot of people don't think about until they're actually in the middle of a crisis. It's uh, things that occur when a Parkinson's patient gets admitted to the hospital. And Dr. Sue, with your experience, could you start us off with, uh, with the way to think about how important this is?
1: Right. So uh, this is a very important topic, as Warren mentioned, and it's important to kind of think about it before you actually end up being admitted. Uh, now, there are lots of reasons to get admitted. Uh, some of them are acute crises. So for example, if you're involved in a road traffic accident and the ambulance takes you over there, that would be one reason to admit. So you have trauma to your body or... Um, you have head injuries or some of the type of, you know, important injury that needs to trauma to be taken care of. That would be one. Another one example would be if you had severe chest pain in the middle of the night and uh, you call 911, the 911 came in and they actually diagnosed you with a heart attack or something like that. Or um, there are other situations where you might get admitted uh, for non-urgent things. And some of the non-urgent things, but they're also equally important to be admitted and taken care of is if you suddenly become confused or if your Parkinson's symptoms acutely get worse. And uh, this is important to recognize that, that Parkinson's disease normally doesn't get worse over a few hours or even over a day or two. It doesn't. Uh, Parkinson's is a slowly progressive disease. So change happens over six months to a year and you don't acutely, so you're working well, and everything all of a sudden you're working is not working well for the next day or two, this usually means that there's something else going on. And what do you mean by something else going on? Typical reasons are you have an infection, your urinary tract infection or respiratory infection, or your medicines are not getting absorbed for whatever reason. Either you didn't take it right, forgot to take it, or was accidentally overdosed on some other medicine. these are common reasons where a patient becomes Parkinson patient becomes more sick all of a sudden, and their symptoms become very acutely worse. Now when this happens, the doctor who's taking care of you, either a family doctor, or if you have a Parkinson doctor, Parkinson doctor might say, "Hey, that doesn't make any sense. You need to get admitted to the hospital." Now, what are the simple things that you need to do when you go get admitted in the hospital on the instruction of either your family doctor or your Parkinson's doctor? One of the important things to do is to, first of all, have somebody with you who can speak for you and represent you because you may be so sick that you cannot speak for yourself and you cannot say things for yourself. So, for example, if you become delirious, you get confused, then you don't have the ability to communicate with your doctors at the emergency room or at your hospital that you're taken to to give them the information that they need. Now, thankfully, in this day and age, there are phones, there are faxes, there are electronic uh, databases, and your doctor in whichever emergency room that you go to could call your Parkinson doctor or your family doctor and get the information if they wanted to. However, it's always helpful... Uh, for you to identify a family member who you would call to go with you, accompany you. And this family member should know all the information that they need to know about your illness. They need to know that you have Parkinson's disease. They need to know what the medicines that you normally take and how you take them. And that's a critical piece of information. So for example, if you're taking the carbidopa, levodopa, 25 100 at a certain schedule, Six, ten, two, six, or seven, eleven, three, seven—something like this. Uh, that information on how you take your medicine, what are the timings in which you take your medicine, should be known to your family member or your welvisher or your caretaker or somebody other than yourself. And that person should be able to communicate that to the emergency room. Be able to tell them this is exactly what you do. They should also know where you keep your medicines so that on the day that you have to go to the hospital, they can actually grab them and take it with them. So this way they know, okay, these are the medicines that you're on, that you're currently taking. And they should also know to some degree, although they may not know all the nuances of it, um, whether there's been any changes that have been made to your medicine off, off, off recently. Now, one of the important things to do when you take your medicine to the hospital is not to just randomly leave it somewhere but actually take accountability. And in most hospitals, if you take medicines, they will take the information, they give the medicine back to you, or they may have it safely stored somewhere so that um, it's not mistaken for somebody else's medicine or is accidentally given to somebody else. In most cases, they give you the medicine back to you to take it back home, and the hospital, they will administer their own medicines there. Now, here's the part that is kind of important for Parkinson patients to remember. Hospitals, when you are admitted to the hospital for any condition, for example, urinary tract infection, or for a fall, or you fractured your rib, or you fractured your femur, whatever, you get admitted to the hospital. The hospital insurance payments are under a different category from when you are getting paid for when you go to a doctor's visit in a clinic. And in most cases, hospital admissions are capitated, meaning there's a set amount of money that the hospital receives for each day of hospital stay. And of course, there are grades of payments that are made. And because of those reasons, the hospitals only contain a certain number of medicines in their formulary. Formulary is a system within the hospital that controls pharmaceutical medications that are stored in the hospital for dispensation to patients. So if it's non-formulary, and many Parkinson's medicines are non-formulary, for example, a common medicine that a lot of Parkinson's patients take is a medicine called Azilect, otherwise called Rasagiline. Now, unfortunately, Rasagiline is somewhat expensive medicine, and many hospitals don't have Rasagiline in their formulary. They will actually use an older medicine, which is called Selegiline, which needs to be dosed twice a day, when the hospital uh, does not carry rasagiline with them. And moreover, rasagiline and selegiline, both of these are MAOB inhibitors. They're relatively mild medicines. Sometimes some hospitals won't even have that. They won't have the rasagiline or the selegiline. They will instead, they will just give the carbidopa levodopa because they say during the inpatient stay for a few days, all we need to do is to give the basic minimum. Now, that in itself could become a problem because you are reducing some of your medicines that you're normally taking. Again, depends on what you're being admitted for. So if you're being admitted for trauma, uh, you are involved in a road traffic accident and you are bleeding and you're being admitted to the trauma bay and they're trying to control your bleeding and the only medicine they can give you is carbidopa levodopa and they don't have anything else in stock, that would be perfectly okay. Similarly, if you're having chest pain, acute chest pain, and they're diagnosing you with a heart attack or some similar thing, or if you have appendicitis, and they say, whoa, this is acute. We need to operate in the next few hours. Otherwise, you're going to have serious complications or potentially die. It's a life-threatening illness, and it's an emergency. At that point, yes, you should just be treated with basic minimum. So if they can give you just some medicine to just keep your body under reasonable shape, or even give you no Parkinson medicine, sedate you and take care of you, that would be okay. On the other hand, if you're going for a relatively less serious illness, it's not life-threatening, but it's certainly important that you need to be admitted, like for example, a urinary tract infection or a series of falls, and we can't find a good reason why you're falling, and this needs to be investigated, then it's important that you get your medicine. And if you can't get all your medicine, that could actually make your situation worse. Somebody who doesn't get all their Parkinson's medicine may have more difficulty walking and become vulnerable to more falls in the hospital. Um, So in that situation, you may want to have all the medication information available with your next of kin, your loved one, or a good friend or somebody who can actually represent you when you are admitted to the hospital. So just to summarize, there are multiple reasons why you might get admitted. Some of them are life-threatening, acute emergencies. The other ones are a little bit less severe, uh, but still serious, the illnesses that require admission and treatment in the hospital setting. For example, urinary tract infection, getting an antibiotic in the, in the hospital may be important. Or if you have a bad pneumonia, not bad case of a, a pneumonia, then you needed to be treated in the hospital for it as well. So those are important things to remember. The next category uh, that I wanna just touch upon is also common illness that affects people in the age group that uh, Parkinson patients are generally in. There are people between the age of 65 and above. In most cases, some younger onset Parkinson patients are less than 65, but vast majority, 80% of Parkinson patients are 65 and above. Both men and women with uh, Parkinson's disease at that age are vulnerable to a number of other common illnesses. And one of the common illnesses that particularly affects uh, women at that age is urinary tract infection. It's very common to get mild urinary tract infection. It's particularly common when women have had difficult childbirth and during childbirth, because of the stretching of the vagina and the urethra, which is right about the... uh, superior wall of the vagina, this uh, urethra can can become uh, somewhat vulnerable for uh, urine leaks or even uh, reflux, urine going back into the uh, bladder. And this condition puts the patient and uh, uh, the environment they are in uh, to be more vulnerable for urinary tract infections. So what I'm trying to say is that older women uh, if they, especially if they had difficult childbirth, will be vulnerable for urinary tract infections, and that needs to be something that they're vigilant for. And because of their vulnerability, they could quickly deteriorate. You might be just fine the previous day, and then you get a little bit of a fever, have a little bit of burning sensation, and the next day you're confused, not able to communicate, um, you're, you seem to be stiff and slow and shaking more, and your Parkinson's suddenly became acutely worse. And in this situation, a simple test, just take you to the hospital, checking your urine to make sure that the urine is infected or not, will tell us, boom, that this person really became sick because of the urine tract infection. And just simply giving antibiotic for a few days as an IV um, might solve the problem very, very quickly and bring them back to their normal situation. Now, this can also happen in men particularly men who have mild enlargement of the prostate, they are also vulnerable for urinary tract infections, and that could also be a problem. Besides this urinary tract infection issue, there are other illnesses, pneumonia, walking pneumonia, like we talked before, or a bad case of the flu, that can also make patients with Parkinson's disease suddenly confused, suddenly uh, delirious, And if you are not knowledgeable and the doctor who's seeing you in the emergency room is not knowledgeable, they may give medicines that are not to be given. So for example, um, when you are brought into the hospital for acute confusion, one of the medicines that frequently gets used in the emergency room is a medicine called Haldol or Haloperidol. This is a powerful medicine, very effective medicine, if somebody is severely confused, delirious, uh, belligerent, uh, this medicine effectively calms them down. However, this is a very strong dopamine blocker. So if you use haloperidol or similar drugs, there are other drugs like Resperidol, Olanzapine, etc. These drugs, if you give it to a Parkinson patient, can make your Parkinsonism very, very worse for several days, sometimes even a week or two. I've seen this haloperidol being used one time, and the patient became suddenly worse and deteriorated in the Parkinson's for the next 10 days or 15 days. It took a long time for them to recover, even after giving all the Parkinson's medicines right. And the reason for this is that haloperidol, while it's a very good and very effective drug for um, hallucinations, delirium, confusion, belligerence, etc., it acts through blocking the dopaminergic system, and which is very, very important for Parkinson's disease. So, if you already are deficient in Parkinson's dopamine and then you add a medicine that blocks dopamine, well, of course, your Parkinson's is going to become worse. So, the model of the story that I'm trying to say right now is that. If you do get into the hospital, you do need to tell the hospital and the doctors that uh, please don't get any, give any medicines that block dopamine, uh, or if they can avoid giving medicines that block dopamine. And one example is haloperidol. There are many other examples. There's also a medicine called Reglan, which we use for treating GI, gastrointestinal problems like a reflux, that is, also works through the dopaminergic system. That should also not be given, if at all possible. So uh, that's another important aspect. So you might say, how am I supposed to communicate all this to the emergency? I'm going there for an emergency, and I don't know how I can communicate all these things. And one of the things I think um, Warren wants to bring up is uh, there are uh, prepackaged kits that are available that gives you this type of information that you can order and you can take it with you. Um, Warren, do you want to touch upon that briefly before we go to the next next round of discussion?
0: Yeah, this is from the, uh, the Parkinson's Foundation, the National Parkinson's Foundation. It's, a, it's called a, it's like a go bag that uh, it has in there. It's, it's a 23 page manual to explain how to, to take care of your medication and that you're supposed to have a list of your medication, a list of your uh, people that they can call for information about you if you're not able to talk. It's just a general emergency bag. And then you want to pack that ahead of time. So that way, when you go to, the, go to the hospital, all you have to do is grab the current medications, throw them in the bag, and then in the admitting area, you just get all that down, and then you take the medicine back so you don't lose it. And it's, it's a very good idea because by the time you get, you get around to tracking down all your medication, you could have already been two or three hours late for your medicine. And then you don't want to be in the hospital, which is an unfamiliar place, which causes enough problems just not knowing where you are. And uh, this way, at least, you'll get your medicine as soon as possible. And I'll put a, a link in the, uh, in the website for this. Right.
1: So um, thanks, Warren, for sharing that. So, yeah, so I think um, either you use the toolkit if you want to get the toolkit, or you can print it off the web, or you can make your own little toolkit if you want to kind of have your own customized version of it. But having something. Having it prepared and having it ready ahead of time uh, is certainly worthwhile. I want to touch upon a few other important things that people generally ask about when they have to be hospitalized. One issue that people worry about is uh, surgery. So if you're going for elective surgery of some kind or an emergency surgery of some kind, what kind of issues you should worry about? So if you have surgery, in most cases, if you're getting general anesthesia, where you're put to sleep, they put a tube down into your respiratory system, and they are helping you breathe using a machine, a ventilator, if these are being done to protect you from what we call aspiration, uh, people tell you, or the doctor might tell you, not to take any food or take any medicine overnight, or they might say, you need to be off medication for several hours. In some cases, they may say, it's okay for you to take your Parkinson's medicine with a small amount of water, uh, but don't eat any food. Um, Now, either case, one thing to remember is that vast majority of medications for Parkinson's disease, in fact, 99% of the medicines are medicines that you take by mouth, oral medicines. So because they're oral medicines, and if you have to be off uh, medicines that work through your GI tract, obviously, that means that your Parkinson's is going to show up more and you're going to have more symptoms. But most of the cases, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon knows that what they're dealing with, whether it's a broken bowl, bone or whether it's appendicitis or a gallbladder that needs to be removed, or if it's an ovarian cyst or um, hysterectomy, whatever, Uh, When they're doing that, they realize that uh, they're going to put you to sleep. They're also going to give you strong muscle relaxant medications. They're also going to give you strong pain medicines. Now, given that they're going to give you all this, it's quite likely that your Parkinson's symptoms will not be noticeable, at least during the time that you are under anesthesia and in the immediate post-recovery period after surgery for several hours. In fact, in many cases, after a period of anesthesia, general anesthesia and waking up, many Parkinson patients report that they feel a little better, at least temporarily, for you know an hour, hour or two, sometimes even 24 hours, you might feel a little bit better. And that's because when you are getting the anesthetic agent, general anesthetic agent, uh, you are basically suppressing all kinds of overactive circuits in the brain and when these overactive circuits are temporarily suspended or put to sleep, um, your Parkinson's symptoms usually does ameliorate uh, for a short period of time. However, obviously, this is not a long-term solution. You cannot put people to under anesthesia just to make them feel better for 24 hours. And also, there's considerable risk for doing anesthesia, uh, including death. Therefore, uh, it's not a trivial uh, matter to be under anesthesia. Now, in the extreme scenario that you are undergoing a surgery and you're undergoing surgery in your GI tract, for example, your colon had to be resected or you have a tumor in your stomach that, that needs to be removed, then you may have to be off oral medications for extended periods of time, several days, maybe even for a week or two. You may have to be off medicine. Now, when that happens... It calls for some specialized uh, treatments. There is a medicine called apomorphine. Apomorphine is an injectable medication that can be used to reduce Parkinson's symptoms. Although the medicine only works for two hours, it can be used intermittently throughout the day. Now, in most cases, most uh, pharmacies don't carry this medicine in the hospital. Most formularies don't have apomorphine, so it has to be special ordered. So it's important that um, uh, if that were to happen, a major GI surgery is being planned and you're not uh, being able to give in any of your medicines by mouth uh, for several days, then your doctor who's doing the surgery will generally consult with a neurologist or call the Parkinson doctor and discuss this matter and see whether there are ways to overcome this particular uh, situation. Another important aspect of having surgery is that some of the medicines that you may be taking will have interactions with the anesthetic agent that is being given. So for example, the medicine that we were talking about earlier, rasagiline, seligiline, and the newer uh, agent in that same category called Zadago, they're all monoamino oxidase B inhibitors. These are enzymes in our body that works on a variety of different hormones, including dopamine. But they also work on another hormone called norepinephrine and epinephrine, which is important for blood pressure control. And as many of you may already know, many anesthetic agents affect your blood pressure. So when you are given these anesthetic agents, um, the anesthesiologist may need to know that you are on medication that can potentially make your blood pressure go up. Because you're on it, and many of these medicines linger in your body for many, many days, if not hours. And because of that, if you need to come off these medicines, uh, you need to have some fair warning that you need to come off. But again, these are rare things. In most cases, just knowing the anesthesiologist, knowing that you're on the medicine, will help them control the blood pressure while they're doing the surgery. They will be able to make the appropriate adjustments. They'll be able to give additional medicines if they need to, to lower your blood pressure. So these things can be worked with quite easily in in most cases. Um, Rarely do they have to communicate with a Parkinson's specialist to get specific answer on what needs to be done in that particular scenario. Finally, pain medicines. This is an important topic as well. Many narcotic pain medicines Um, will cause some degree of confusion. So if you have advanced Parkinson's disease and you already have a bit of confusion because you have mild cognitive impairment, it can become substantially worsened when you are given strong narcotic pain medicines. Um, This can particularly be a problem if you are vulnerable to hallucinations. So if you already have a little bit of a hallucination, you're seeing a little mouse, or a little birdie once in a while. And then you get admitted to the hospital for, let's say, kidney stone. And kidney stone is a very, very painful condition. And often you need to be given very strong dose of medicine, such as morphine or other kind of very strong pain medications that are in the opiate categories have to be given because you are in such severe pain. It's not unusual that in that scenario that you might start hallucinating more or that your confusion become worse, even though you're pain-free. Now, that's an expected complication. Many doctors know about it, but some doctors may not know about it. And it's important for you to let them know that it's Parkinson's and that you have had hallucinations before, and that when you are taking the opiates, it may make your situation worse. Uh, now, if that happens, the important thing to do is to just let the medication wear off Rather than take yet another medicine, like for example, inadvertently take haloperidol or something, uh, in this scenario. Because if you do take haloperidol, now you're not only confused, but your Parkinson's will become even worse. And I have seen that happen as well. So it's important that <clears throat> in these scenarios, anesthesia, post anesthesia recovery, as well as uh, pain medications used for different conditions, that the Emergency room doctor try to communicate with the neurologist on call, or uh, if needed in advance of any surgery, communicate with your Parkinson doctor to get some advice on how to manage the anesthesia. Many doctors, many anesthesiologists are knowledgeable about this. Um, they are, have taken care of Parkinson patients in their in their lifetime, and they will be easily able to adapt to it. It's not that difficult but occasionally it's important that they communicate. The last topic I want to com- uh, touch upon is deep brain stimulation, DBS, and DUOPA. So deep brain stimulators, as many of you know, are devices that are put into Parkinson patients to help control their uh, symptoms. Unfortunately, this is a mechanical device. Any mechanical device can have problems, and mechanical failure can happen and the commonest mechanical failure that happens is that the battery dies on you if the battery has not been checked uh, for a very long time or you didn't interrogate using your own handheld device to see how much battery life is there which many of you are taught or almost everybody is taught how to do and you didn't check it and you didn't know where you stand this can abruptly go die on you. And if it abruptly dies on you, you could become abruptly symptomatic. One of the most dramatic examples I remember is one of my patients who was told to check it uh, because it was already showing that the battery was a little bit on the low side, but he refused to have the surgery. He said, I want to go until the last uh, 1% is there. Well, this individual forgot to check it and then got into an airplane and it was fine getting into the plane, but when the plane landed, he couldn't get out of the chair, from the seat anymore because his uh, device died and he was in bad shape. He had to be taken out in a wheelchair and uh, then uh, taken to a local hospital to have the battery replacement done. This happened a long time ago. and Nowadays, this doesn't happen because uh, most people do get checked their device at least once a year, uh, if not sooner. And you also have your own personal interrogator in which you can check the status of your battery to make sure that it's not going to die on you. Uh, There's also rechargeable devices that you can charge yourself. So uh, many are getting this type of devices put in. So if that's the case, again, it shouldn't be a huge problem, Um, but it can be a reason why you might get into the emergency room because you have mechanical failure. Now, if that happens, Uh, Again, it depends on which emergency room you end up because not all emergency rooms do have expertise to deal with deep brain stimulators. Some do and some don't, especially a local community hospital nearby to your house. If you end up going there, they may not have a device to interrogate or a device to help you recharge or do any of those things. Uh, In that case, you do want to communicate with your neurosurgeon or the place where you get your DBS implanted, or you may also want to call the um, emergency line for the manufacturer of the device. Uh, device companies do have websites where you can go um, call for an emergency. And now we have uh, three different uh, device manufacturers, and all of them are available on website. So it's important that if you have a DBS uh, implanted in you, that you carry the informational card that they give you give the serial number as well as the date that it was implanted, where it was implanted, and it has the 1-800 number or the toll-free number for you to call in case the device fails. And you end up being in the emergency room. Now, if they end up in a community hospital and the device interrogating uh, expertise doesn't exist there, you can be managed temporarily with medication. Now, it may not be perfect because um, oftentimes the reason for you to undergo DBS is that medicines are not good enough, but temporarily until you get respite, temporarily until you get to a person who knows how to take care of your DBS, um, there is a way to simply give you oral medications. Now, remember, if you're given oral medication, it takes some time for it to work. It might take several hours. It may even take a day or two for it to work. So during that time, you may be stiff and slow. You may need to be cared for. You may need to be in the hospital. But eventually, once the medicine starts working, you should be able to get uh, 50 60% recovery of function without the DBS being turned on. Of course, nowadays, there are many facilities that have the DBS and people with knowledge of how to deal with the DBS. So you can just simply be, transport it to the nearest facility where this can be done, and then we can take, it, take care of it from there. So typically, what we do is that we admit and then we rapidly try to replace the battery, which is a fairly simple operation where they can open up the skin under your chest, remove the old battery and put a new battery in, and uh, it's usually an hour, hour and a half procedure to get this done. But when this happens, when you acutely shuts down, the machine shuts down on you, it can be quite a nerve-wracking experience uh, for Parkinson's patients. Uh, Along the same lines, occasionally devices do fail for other reasons other than the battery. It can be a lead failure where the lead can get corroded um, or its impedance can suddenly increase because there's um, either corrosion at the... Uh, at the tip of the electrode or corrosion on its attachment to the device. Or um, rarely there can be infections, pockets of infection, although typically that type of thing happens acutely after the surgery. It usually doesn't happen after years after the surgery. Infection is very low likelihood, but it can happen. Occasionally the electrode can also erode the skin and become externalized, and that's also a problem that may need to be taken care of. So there are many um, issues related to DBS. We don't have time to deal with all of them, but at least the acute emergencies that may take you to the emergency room with a DBS failure is something that we want to touch upon. Then similarly, there's a device called Duopa. Duopa is a pump where you have a tube put into your jejunum uh, and then you have an external pump device. Now that can also have, Vocational emergency issues that take you to the hospital. The commonest one is that the tubing gets blocked or tubing is eroded, that uh, it gets displaced from where it's supposed to be to another location. Uh, if this happens, again, the pump doesn't deliver the drug in the right location. It's not going to the jejunum. It's either going into the duodenum or it's going into the stomach or it's not going anywhere at all. and um, That would be a problem. And typically, that would require you to come to the hospital, and we have to do a test to see whether the tube is patent. And usually, this involves injecting a dye and taking an x-ray. And if we find out that there's a blockage, then that back blockage can either be relieved, or if it's misplaced, it can be repositioned. But during this time, when this is all done, it can be quite nerve-wracking because the medicine is no longer working. You're stiff and slow. You're in the emergency room. You might be Uh, suffering a lot of symptoms. Uh, But the good news here is in both the DBS case and the Duopa case is that oral medications can be used as a rescue to help you relieve of your symptoms. But all of these situations call for preparedness. And I think that's the message of today's um, podcast is to have you prepared for these type of eventualities. Having information gathered medication gathered, a set of tools put together when you go to the emergency room, for whatever reason, whether it's an acute emergency or whether it's a sort of a soft emergency, both cases, having the information ready so that somebody uh, who is knowledgeable about it can actually bring the information to the doctors in the ED is actually very helpful. Warren, your thoughts?
0: Uh, are you able to uh, re- redo this uh the rest of this topic next week, yeah, sure. Okay, we, we, we,
1: we go to a more detailed discussion because there's a lot of things to talk about. Yes. right,
0: right. There's a lot of I have a lot of uh, scenarios that could happen that if you know how to handle it, it'd mm-hmm. be much better for your uh, your stay at the hospital. Right. but right. okay, so um, we'll we'll pick this up next week.
1: All right. Hey, good talking to you. I hope this is a good overview beginning, which we talked about some of the main things. But uh, as Warren said, we will come back and talk about each of these individual situations in more detail.
0: Good, thanks. Yeah. Have a good day.
1: Uh huh.